Welcome to the EMT Pro Podcast, where we deliver relevant EMS content from the field and the classroom each week. Each episode of this podcast gets you one full hour of CE through our partner, emt-ce.com, so head over there for more information. I'm your host, Steve Williams, and with me, as usual, is Dan and Holly. Guys, say hello. Hi, Steve. Hi, Holly. Good morning. Good morning. So, we got part two of our two-part episode on ketamine use. Yes. And we're really excited to be bringing in Dr. Ramsey Selbach from... Uh, he's ER doc up in Portland area and is just an awesome dude all around. So I'm really excited to chat with him. Sounds good. Answer a lot of our questions we have. Yeah, and we've got quite a few. I'm curious to hear his take on the whole ketamine thing. Yeah. See what his uh, experience is like with it and, yeah, just chat with him for a bit. Sounds good. All right, let's give him a call. All right. Uh, Ramsey, are you there? I'm there. Hello. Yeah, no, it's good to have you on the show and excited to kind of wrap up our chat on ketamine with you. So, um, awesome. I guess, Thanks for having me. yeah, man, what, what the first thing that we are curious about is, you know, it seems like one of the things that we've continually run into amongst the three of us in our, you know, field careers, if you want to call it that, is there seems to be some hesitancy among physician to physician when it comes to ketamine use in general. Some people love uh-huh. the fact that we have it, and some people are really hesitant that we have it. Um, yeah. And I know I've had a couple doctors who I would say aren't the usual physicians that we um, take patients to. Maybe they're working a shift randomly in the ER that month, um, <clears throat> or they're filling in for someone. And we bring, of course, you know, they're the one that we bring the patient on ketamine to. And they seem very like, wait, you did what? You gave yeah. them what? And, so nervous. Yeah, right. and they're very nervous about it. So curious to hear what your take is on it and what your overall thoughts are on the drug. Yeah, I think I think that's a pretty common, um, it sort of tends to be, at least in my experience, a somewhat polarizing medication. I think even, you know, I'm only a year out of training, even from the beginning of my residency to the end of my residency, ketamine was kind of like, I think initially this sort of new, it's not a new drug, but like this new sexy drug that people started using for sedations or pain control or whatever, you know, people I think really liked it. Mm-hmm. And then in my experience, I think part of the reason that there's hesitancy is there there tends to be a uh, bigger range of reactions to ketamine, in my experience, than other medications that we use for similar reasons, like whether it be propofol or, you know, benzos. I think they, they're they a little more predictable from, from my experience. I think that that's part of the reason that people have had some hesitancy with ketamine. I think it's a great drug, and it definitely has um, its time and place in, in the in the ED or I'm sure in, you know, the pre-hospital setting for you guys. But I definitely have, in my own experience with ketamine, have had a lot of variable reactions to ketamine that I was not necessarily anticipating. Mm-hmm. You know, people people going into the, the K-hole that people are familiar with, that, that's never a fun, like, a origin phenomenon where people freak out and then you got to throw a bunch of other medications at them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are, I mean, there truly are some really scary complications with ketamine that are very rare. But once you see a number of them, you, I have, I gained a whole new respect for ketamine. Like 
the first time I had a patient with true like laryngospasm from ketamine and it was a kid mm-hmm. and it's like a shit your pants moment. Right. right. You know? Um, so I think that it, it's a great medication. I think it's awesome for, you know, pre-hospital pain control and somebody that has got a big femur fracture that you're having a hard time getting pain control. Um, but in those, the doses you're using there are a lot smaller. I think you, you run into issues or sort of more unpredictable reactions when you're using bigger doses for like sedations or, um, or the one that really makes me the most nervous is for like the agitated delirium patients. Mm-hmm. We're given like a huge slug of yeah. IM ketamine that's going to hang out a long time. You know, those patients kind of by definition are going to be really hard to get, uh, you know, like on all the monitors. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Some people are in that way. You know, it's going to be hard to get them on the monitor. It's going to be hard to get them on end title. Um, so, that, I mean, those patients make me a little nervous mm-hmm. still. The, the use of ketamine for that because of how unpredictable it can be. And I think you, with big doses, like you can run into some respiratory suppression, you can run into blood pressure issues. So I, I, in my experience, I think that's probably why there's a lot of variability in people's reaction to it. There's only really sure. some people that are just huge ketamine fans, but mm-hmm. a lot of people are, are hesitant with it. I think that have run into some, some of those reactions probably is my, my and it seems like there's like the small pain dose and that's really good to use. Mm-hmm. And then there's the sedation dose, but there's still that brain continuum where mm-hmm. you have to get over the, the recreational part, right? right? Like right, the 30 right. to 50 milligrams, right. probably the recreational use right. up to that. You want them to go to sleep time. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's probably, yeah. um, I think the hardest thing for people in the field is if you're using it for the agitated delirium, are we using enough mm-hmm. or are we just putting them into a, you know, a state where it makes it worse? Right. I, right. I feel like we're not using it. Uh, we're not using it enough. Right. Like, you got to stay below that, that 25 milligrams or, mm-hmm. or go up way, to a hundred. Right. Way and over. I, I just want to reiterate because we do this when we start talking about drugs, obviously we're going to be talking about dosages for certain types of indications with this drug. By no means does that right. equal go do this in the field. This is a chat we're having. <laughs> And follow, follow your, your local protocols, protocols because that's what <laughs> right. we always harp on. Um, uh, don't take anything that we're talking about as, as gold with this episode. But um, so, so Doc, what you were what you were saying though was interesting because we've 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 had classes where and it's kind of this unknown. Like Ramsey was just saying, you get to this pain dose and you're like, okay, sweet, like it, it's great for mm-hmm. managing you know pain and all that kind of stuff at like that point two ish make per kick dose. But then we jump to like four milligrams per kilogram for IM, you know, chemical sedation or chemical restraint. And Mm -hmm. you know, you're kind of wondering there's this like funky gap in the middle where if you put them into that, that you don't want to be in. And so you're either underdosing it to stay under that or overdosing it to stay above that. And at the same time, what, like you're saying, Ramsey, like you get to that spot where, Okay, now you've given so much that now you're going to see some of these other side effects that aren't super common. Right. Um, and it's, yeah, it's just a, that's why we're talking about it. But do you think, <laughs> it might, is, yeah. Do you think it might have to do with, uh, how quick we push it? Um, you know, I know, I know. So you, go ahead. You, yeah, I think that well, for sure that in the, in the IV case, I think in the, in the IM, you know, part of the, you know, when you're talking about the agitated delirium patient, you, 
you should at least probably if you can get an IV on them, then they're probably not as bad. Right, <laughs> you probably don't need them. Right. You probably don't need it, but so that, you know, in the IM version, I think the push is probably less of an issue. But in the, I mean, if you look at the literature on like you know cases of laryngospasm, for example, that they do tend, or at least the literature suggests that they tend to be related to faster pushes, higher doses, um, and things like that. So I think that how quickly you push it does make a difference for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and in my, you know, in my experience, I've only seen that two or three times. And I mean, I don't, I've used ketamine a lot. Um, and I can't say, you know, I think they were regular, you know, pushes. They weren't like super fast pushes. Um, but the laryngospasm is, it is profound. Like, Mm-hmm. To the point that we didn't have to intubate that patient, but it was pretty close. Mm-hmm. You know, like we added some propofol on, we back valves, and, you know, we basically increased the peak to try to, like, pop the cords open, and eventually it worked. But it, it is one of the things where you could definitely get into some serious trouble if you weren't prepared for it. When that happened, um, were you using it for a sedation, like a conscious sedation? or It was for a conscious sedation for, I think it was a fracture reduction, if I recall. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, That's scary. And we, yeah, and you know, I I would say for whatever reason, we use ketamine a lot for kids for mm-hmm. fracture reduction because kids, um, the way kids metabolize propofol is less sort of predictable than the way adults metabolize propofol. So for kids, it tend, actually tends to be a little bit more consistent. Um, and you don't have to get, typically you don't have to kind of get them like totally down and floppy like you mm-hmm. do for some reductions for adults. But so we use it a lot for kids. And, you know, I've only seen it, I think, twice in kids, maybe once in an adult, and it was in, in the OR. But, you know, the other thing I will say this past year with, COVID that we've, because we've, you know, a lot of people talk about using it in, in people with bad asthma or COPD that need a tube, right? So there's some literature to suggest that it helps kind of mm-hmm. bronchodilate and is help, helpful with that. But our pharmacist up on the, up on the hill at OHSU have mentioned this a couple of times that there's a, this sort of like delayed hypotensive event that can happen with ketamine. Hmm. And that is something over the last, I had never seen that, but over the last year with a number of COVID patients that we ended up needing to use ketamine on, they became dramatically hypotensive. Did you use ketamine ketamine. for an induction? Yeah, for an induction. Mm -hmm. That's one thing that we talked about in the field quite a bit um, at the flight company that we worked at was if, if you do have someone in sepsis or major trauma where maybe they've used up all of those endogenous catecholamines, Maybe mm-hmm. even reducing the dose of ketamine for an induction, since they don't have that that alpha, like it's not an, it's not opposed anymore. You don't have those right. circulating around catecholamines, or maybe give them a little push dose epi first, or something like that. Um, in the hospital, is that is that a thing? Is that it sounds like in this case it was. You know the exact mechanism of it. I think I don't know honestly. I just. Can tell you anecdotally, I've seen a number of patients where we use where we'll use ketamine either for for pulmonary reasons or because it tends to be a pretty blood or you know it's mm-hmm. thought to be a pretty blood pressure neutral medication. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have seen profound hypotension after after ketamine for for both inductions and sedation. 
Um, and it tends to be in sicker patients. So there may be some, you know, what you're saying with the cat- endogenous catecholamine circulating might, might be related to that. But um, just in my practice, that's another thing that has sort of made me a little more like hesitant or a little more respectful of ketamine. Yeah. And, you know, I kind of always make sure to have push dose FD or phenylephrine or something on hand if we're doing that. But, um, so, th- I mean, those are a couple instances that have come up for me, like in the hospital, obviously, that are sort of sphincter, sphincter tightening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and you said you give it a lot. Would you say like every shift you're giving ketamine? I wouldn't say every shift, but, you know, definitely almost every week. Mm-hmm. You know, um, but I, I have moved, honestly, because of some of those reactions and some of the um, inconsistency with how people react to it, I, I don't use it as much as I probably did in training as a resident. Uh, personally, like I just, you know, some benzos or propofol or I just find, especially with the adult population or they're metabolized pretty consistently in my experience. So, I mean, I'll, I'll use it. I think it's, I would say the thing I use it the most for, which is a funny way to put it because it's a pretty rare thing, but is for conscious, um, awake intubation. I would say that's, that's probably the place that in my toolbox that will always live. So if somebody's coming in with, you know, a swollen upper airway and they're still protecting their airway and they're still maintaining their airway, we don't want to take that away, mm-hmm. but we want to get a look at what's going on back there and huh. do like a, you know, there, I've done a number of, I'm going to take a look, I'm going to have a tube on a, you know, MT scope and if if their airway looks terrible, then we're going to push the rest of the ketamine and, and paralyze them and intubate them while they're awake, essentially. Mm-hmm. And that's, it's a, it's a great drug for that because they can sit up and they can protect their airway, stick a camera in their nose and look at their posterior airway and they don't really care that much. Um, and you can get a really good look at what's going on. And then, you know, if you feel like it's unsafe or you need to back up, then, they're still at least protecting their airway and you don't take that away. Otherwise, you know, end up in a tough spot. Mm-hmm. For sure. If that makes sense. So I, I like it for that a lot. And I still use it for that reason. Granted, you know, that happens maybe a few times a year. It's pretty, it's not a, a common thing. Mm-hmm. You use the word respectful of the drug, which is a great word because mm-hmm. sometimes we don't do that. We just kind of follow an algorithm without critically thinking. What, what types of things should, I mean, you've already said them, but let's, let's talk, okay, laryngospasm. Let's talk hypotension. How should we be administering the drug? What kind of doses yeah. should we be using? What kind of things should we be doing, um, to respect the drug? Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. I think for patients that you're in a controlled environment and you're not treating like a, you know, person with agitated delirium or like, Frank psychosis, who you, who you're using the drug to keep yourself safe and keep the patient safe and then be able to actually like manage the patient, right? Because mm-hmm. that's the sort of stuff that, that I think is harder to apply these general rules to. But let's, you know, if you're treating, if you have a patient who you're treating for pain and you have the ability to get an IV on them and put them on the monitors and 
have some oxygen on them if you need it. Um, you know, cycle their blood pressure every few minutes. You know, just like I think going back to the basics that we all know we should do with medications and patients that have the ability to become critically ill, right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot, you know, there's a lot of times where we take care. Of, I think we get so used to taking care of things that would be sort of in the critical care arena that it doesn't feel like that anymore, even though it still is. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to apply the same, you know, like due diligence to making sure we're being safe. For sure. If that makes sense. Yeah. So, you know, I think any patient that you're giving ketamine to, or even fentanyl or any of these pre-hospital medications, like making sure that you have good access, making sure that you're, you know, what their vital signs are, making sure that you are keeping an eye on their airway. So, I mean, laryngospasm, for example, can be kind of subtle initially, and then it's not, but, you know, just looking at the way they're breathing, making sure that they're not all of a sudden making some weird noisy respirations, making sure that you just like are keeping an eye on the patient because you gave them a medication that, like you said, like we should respect and realize that we're trying to make them better, but there are side effect profiles for everything we do. Right. And hundred percent. Um, so let's say you have laryngospasm for, uh, for our folks out there. I, I've uh-huh. never, I don't think I've ever encountered it that I've ever noticed. Mm-hmm. Um, have you ever done yeah. like, the Larson's maneuver or anything like that? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's like essentially your step one of laryngospasm is like, you know, anytime you do a jaw, a really good jaw thrust, you're kind of doing, hitting that like Larson point, that pressure point that can help break laryngospasm. Um, but I mean, the thing you'll first notice is, have you ever, have you ever seen somebody like breathing against like a closed glottis? Like they, mm-hmm. their, their chest just doesn't move right, you right. know? Right. Like that's probably the first thing you'll notice, especially on kids, because kids' chests are so compliant. Like you can see the chest moving a lot in adults. It's a little more subtle and it's probably less common in adults. But, um, I think the first thing you'll notice is that like, oh, they're breathing their breathing pattern has changed. And then if you've given ketamine, then like that should be sort of, you have a higher index of suspicion that that might be going on. And then, you know, take a listen to their anterior neck, see if you hear any strider or any squeaky breath. Um, and then, yeah, like a good, a good jaw thrust or hitting that Larson's point to try to break it. And if you really, I mean, if you see that at all with ketamine, you should be reaching for your BGM and like ready to give, positive pressure breaths to try to kind of break that laryngospasm is sort of the first step. Now, is uh, that laryngospasm going to go on for the duration of like that whole 15 minutes that the ketamine's <clears throat> kind of in its peak effect? It, it tends to, in my experience with it, no, it tends to be much more short-lived than that. Um, and it tends to break, if you can break it, you know. With the positive it, pressure or the... With the positive pressure or... Um, or the, you know, a good jaw thrust, then it, it doesn't tend to, like, hang out and come mm-hmm. back. That's good to know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, usually when you can, at least in my experience, and again, this is pretty rare, and most providers only see this, like, a handful of times in their career, because it is really rare. But in my experience, it's, it's when you break it, you've, it's, you've broken it. But so you can, those are the first steps, right? Like any airway management stuff. Um 
And then if you need to really, the, the next step is getting them deeper into a sedation with either propofol or benzos or, and then, you know, if you need to intubate them, you need to intubate them. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the thing that we're using, I would say most, we're using ketamine most often for is because we've got that patient that Versed or, you know, Ativan isn't really going to touch because they're on some extreme, you know, mm-hmm. crazy overdose of whatever they've taken or cocktail of things they've taken. And yeah. so it, the thing that I love, I would say I love the drug for the most is the safety factor because we're literally not fighting a patient anymore to give Versed and then wait only to find out that it's not going right, to, you know, touch work. whatever they're doing. Right. Right. And, and with, I mean, with this drug, it's, gosh, within a minute of receiving it, they are mm-hmm. out. It I does mean, work. Out, quickly. out. And then at that point, that's when we are looking at getting an IV, looking at getting, you know, Verset on board, looking at the monitor and checking all that stuff, but. And the patient you might decide in the field is too much of a danger mm-hmm. might be someone in the ER they might manage a different way because 100%. there's two of you, not right. 10, right. that you don't have security guards. Sometimes right. you have police. Yeah. Um, but your situation escalates a lot more quickly than maybe it would in the ER. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's why sometimes you said that people look at you like, you gave them what? Oh, totally. Um, yeah, absolutely. they don't understand. <laughs> yeah, they're like, right. wait, why did you have to do that? You know, like, <laughs> And it's hard to paint the picture where, you know, the most recent time we gave it, which I think I talked about on the last episode, was we had a, a college student who's literally just breaking everything in his apartment is in this psychotic state. And he was going to hurt himself. Like, yeah. th- this is really, it protects us, which is great. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, seeing safety first. But, like, second thing is it's protecting our patients more in, um, in these situations. And, you know, there's definitely... Like we're talking about, there's times you don't want to give it or be very hesitant, uh, mm-hmm. giving it, but, um, yeah, I think in the, pre- especially a lot of people don't sort of appreciate how your guys' environment, your environment, like, you know, we do ride along as residents and stuff and it's very eye opening being two people on the back of a rig with a person like that or any patient for that matter. Mm-hmm. It's a, I mean, it's like a, it's like night and day practicing medicine right it's you guys have a whole host of other uh, complications and factors that you have to manage that people that don't work in a pre-hospital setting don't necessarily understand honestly mm-hmm. um so your th- your threshold to give a medication like ketamine might be a little bit lower than the threshold in the in the emergency department for example because we can call 14 security guards over to help manage this patient. Right. Right. It is nice that it's short acting too. If you gave um, like Ativan, I am that's so unpredictably absorbed anyways, and then it might last for a really long time. So if if you're giving, what dose are you giving for your um, like excited delirium patients or agitated delirium? Mm -hmm. Uh, No, I'm sorry. Of ketamine. Ketamine. Ketamine, um, It's, Four milligrams IM, two milligrams IV. Okay. Per, per kilogram. Per kilogram. Yeah. 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 That's uh, great. Cause you're, yeah. the, the, you've just night, night yeah. right. is what you're doing. And yeah. then how, yeah. how often yeah. on your transports when you get to the hospital, are they starting to wake up again or? Well, we usually keep them down with, uh, Verset on Versailles. top of that. Mm-hmm. Once, as soon as we can get Verset on board, we give it. Yeah. One, to keep them down. Two, 
we want to keep them out of that emergency. And, yeah, because honestly, right. Ramsey, we don't want them waking up. That's right. going to be your problem yeah. later. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. Best and like luck. you guys are you know, painting the picture, like that's a, it's a, it's a risk-benefit analysis. And for a patient like that, if you don't do anything, they're going to get hurt or you're going to get hurt. And so I think, you know, using ketamine in that instance makes sense, right? And you can, and again, once you do it, it's not like you're, you're getting him down and throwing in the back of the rig and like you guys are both getting in the front seat and driving to the hospital. <laughs> right. Like you're Those obviously, were the good old you know, days. Like, yeah, <laughs> you're keeping a super close eye on him like you would with, with any other medication. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, yeah, I think we don't use it as much in that instance because we have so much, so many more resources. But when I talk to medics and pre-hospital folks, they're, they say exactly what you guys are saying. And that it works really fast, it's predictable, it feels safe for us and safe for the patient in the sense of, you know, getting control over a uncontrolled situation. Totally. And having that airway protection, which I know we have to be aware that it may or may not cause right. complications, but right. it does mm-hmm. have a lot more airway protection than if we're giving Versed. Right. And then yeah. another bit, a little bit, because it didn't work, and maybe some Haldol or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah, and the yeah. days before ketamine, I, I really, like, and I, I would still say my guard is still up on the excited delirium patient, but, I mean, I, obviously it is, but it was, it was a very scary situation for me personally, going to these calls, going, I don't think we have the drug to, to help calm them down right. and to, you know, get them into a space where we can treat them safely. And so I remember a few calls before we had this drug where the police would show up and, you know, it's taking six of them to hold this person down. And, you know, then you bring in how bad that looks, you know, from the optics, mm-hmm. right? And um, I remember that one of the best things one, a police officer ever did on scene was this This guy was in his early 30s and was uh, having, you know, I think he was actually on bath salts, if I remember correctly. But uh, he was biting chunks out of his arm. Oh, Like my. literally taking chunks of his own Ew. flesh out. And then had gouged one eyeball out was just, it was a horrible situation. And the mom of the, cause this guy lived with his mom. We can talk all day long about, you know, (laughs) what was going wrong there, but, um, he's living with his mom in this apartment and she came home to see, you know, six cops on top of her son, right? All this blood everywhere and eye injury and us trying to like stab him with an IV kind of a thing. And the supervisor who hadn't jumped in with the other six cops, uh, stepped back and while she was screaming was like, ma'am, as soon as you can, as soon as we can make it happen, I want you to go talk to your son and I want you to see the kind of state he's in right now. Cause she's like, he's never acted like that right, before. Like, right. what are you talking about? Blah, 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 blah. And he walks her over after we kind of get this guy secured and she starts trying to talk to him and he's not there. Like, mm-hmm. he's in another totally dimension. Out. And we hadn't even really given him anything yet. It was just, it was, we were secured him to a gurney with some, you know, uh, soft restraints, but it was really eye opening, quote unquote, for her to see her <laughs> no son. Pun yeah, no pun intended. <laughs> yeah. Um, to see her son like that. And, you know, and that was one of those like, like pearls. Yeah. Like one of those scene pearls that really changed the way that when I can do that yeah. moving forward, I will. And yeah. with that most recent one that, uh, with the, guy that was breaking everything in his apartment you know it was a conscious like oh yeah go tell the the friend and the girlfriend who called 911 to come 
see this guy, yeah. you know, because they had seen him in his crazy state, so they understood that. But then they got to see him in his sleepy state, mm-hmm. you know, and we just kind of <clears> kept <throat> them involved the entire time so that there wasn't that right. really bad optics. You mm-hmm. know, they came and they knocked him out and they just hauled him off, and it's like, well, it was for his safety, you know, yeah. <laughs> and ours. And sometimes and maybe they're head injured or they're hypoxic, and that's the reason they're. Mm-hmm. So you need to sedate them in order to take care of them for their safety. Yeah, hundred percent. Speaking of head yeah. injury, speaking of head injuries, what is yeah. your take on the uh, the TBI and ketamine and all that myth stuff? What do you got for us, sir? Well, I think you know. If you talk to folks in the trauma world, trauma issues, some people definitely still don't love it. Um, but as far as I can tell, most of the literature has borne out that, that ketamine does not, you know, cause increased intracranial pressure or necessarily make it worse. Right. right. Um, but I would say there are still a lot of things within medicine that take a lot of time the literature is usually way ahead of practice patterns in everything, right? Even, even things, we're still doing things that, that we know are fine, but we don't do them because, you know, 30 years ago they said we shouldn't and that, that gets pretty ingrained in people. But Mm -hmm. so, I mean, I think I still, I probably try to avoid it in head injured patients, even though I think that it's probably fine if you look at the data. And I think there are a lot of, critical care folks like from with the emergency medicine community that probably use it very comfortably and are fine with it. Um, but again, I mean, like you're saying, you know, the whole crux of all this is, you know, whether they were head injured or psychotic or agitated delirium or whatever, you know, I think making sure you know what you're treating is critical, like in everything we do, right. You know, just, or being aware of, this person's acting strange because they're head injured or this person's acting strange because they're, you know, intoxicated on some drug. Like the way we manage those patients is different and mm-hmm. it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't always uh, work out that way. You know, sometimes we just throw stuff at people to, to get a uh, control of the situation, which is fine. And it's okay to, to get control and make everything safe for everybody. But I think, getting back to like making sure we're all thinking critically about like, why are, why are, why are we using this medication right now? What are the complications we need to be aware of in this potentially head injured patient? You know, like the amount of head injuries we see in that excited, delirious, psychotic patient that we don't know about is probably a lot. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. You know, so yeah, I think it's probably, I think it's probably fine. I think it would be interesting to have like a, a trauma, you know, a critical care tra- trauma doctor on here. They may have stronger opinions about that, truthfully, but. I know um, a lot of people actually aren't carrying anything besides ketamine for induction anymore. Do you guys still carry Atomidate? We do. In the field? Yeah. yeah that's our main I remember we went to ketamine solution. because we couldn't get Atomidate. That's kind of how the, how we right. started using it mm-hmm. and then kept it around. Um, so I know for some places, the only other option is a shitload of Versed. Right, right. Uh-huh. And that's not good either for a brain injured patient. You want to keep their maps up, you're going to probably drop their pressure. Um, exactly. It's, yeah. it's that whole juggle. What, what do we do? Right. And I think, again, it's always important to have other adjunct medications on hand, you know, like some push dose pressors or some fennel sticks or whatever, especially in the brain injured patient. Mm-hmm. Um, 
because like I said, I have, I mean, I have anecdotally seen some wonky blood pressures after ketamine inductions that, you know, you'd want to be able to address and manage if, if that person did have a, was a brain injured patient. And some of that um, too could be, I know that you would be able to speak to this more because you see a lot more agencies come in with trauma patients um, or intubated patients, mm-hmm. but we're not, we try to be really good at sedation and pain management, but I think a lot yeah. of people are not very good at pain management or sedation. So you do intubate with ketamine, maybe when was their last fentanyl? When was their last right, versed? Right. When was their last ketamine? Did you redose sure. it? Um, or did you just do the one and done and now they're, they're in pain, but they can't tell you because they're still paralyzed. Right. Well, and, and I'll right. be honest on that, on that note, like going back, I was thinking back to paramedic curriculum when I first started kind of, I don't know, I, I was getting some, some flack, rightfully so, from nurses and doctors about why didn't you redose your fentanyl? And it's like, well, it's not in our protocol and it's not something we're really harped on to do, but it, you, you get, you dive into the critical care or the flight medic curriculum and it is thou shalt. Yeah. Right. You yeah. give, if you, you want to be on our medical director shit list, yeah. you do not like you do absolutely good pain management. Get it. <laughs> and it's really interesting that that just gets omitted. Yeah. Like, yeah. Look at protocols from major areas and it's not harped on that when you get done giving your, you know, RSI cocktail, yeah. hit them with your, you know, fentanyl or whatever else you're carrying. We had um, my buddy, our side, someone, and gave fentanyl. This was about five years ago. Gave fentanyl and got written up. Yeah. When I was a paramedic, we didn't crazy. do post-intubation no. sedation. Nope. Yeah. We didn't give pain meds for abdominal pain or back pain. Mm-hmm. You know, it was really barbaric. Yeah. So you're basically paralyzing people and letting everything wear off and delivering them to the ER in this terrible... Right, here, here you go. I got <laughs> the terrible tube. Terrible state. Yeah. <laughs> give him some back. What yeah. also... <laughs> Like it's a lot of the calls, not that I to see we get all the you know the calls from the um, EMS folks where they have questions in the field. And we throughout residency, we I would get calls a lot. Actually, Brian called me once about giving ketamine in the field because so many patients now are either on you know wildly high doses of opioids or narcotic pain medications, or there's a lot of people now on Suboxone, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of hesitancy among medics to give things like fentanyl and Dilaudid or whatever you carry that are, you know, traditional narcotic pain medications to those folks on Suboxone. Mm-hmm. So, hit, you know, hitting different, sometimes you have to hit different receptors if those receptors are saturated. Right. right? Exactly. That's a really good point. Um, and so, I mean, that's a, that's a way that we use it also, you know, just, it just kind of came to my mind in the ER. Like if I have a patient that's, a daily heroin user, right, getting there and they have something that needs pain control, you know, giving the doses of Dilaudid or fentanyl or morphine that I would have to give in the ER to effectively manage their pain. Like, if I put that order in, I would have four nurses at my desk in 30 seconds, right, Mm -hmm. being like, what are you doing? This person's going to, like, stop breathing. So you just hit different receptors. So, like, Mm -hmm. you can use ketamine, you can use benzos. And, I would get a number of calls from the field about that. Um, and it's great for that, right? Like pain dose ketamine in the field for somebody whose who's receptors are pretty saturated with other stuff. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about giving ketamine as a sole agent? Like I know a lot of our protocols are to give ketamine with a narcotic, like as an adjunct to a narcotic. Mm-hmm. Um, do you you guys know, do I think s- if you, I want to say that the one, I think when Brian, Brian, Guys, help her in, right? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. 
when I think when he called me, he was in the middle of nowhere with a patient. If I recall, I'm pretty sure he had a femur fracture and was on Suboxone. And so he basically was like, I don't think fentanyl is going to work. Or he was worried that it would um, put him in opioid mm-hmm. withdrawal rate, mm-hmm. which it won't. Just so we're not clear on that. It won't like, you can still use fentanyl. You'll just have to use probably higher doses um, for somebody on Suboxone but or buprenorphine. And yeah, I think he went straight to Ketamine. And I said, yeah, I think that's a reasonable thing to do for this, you know, this is kind of a specific patient, right? Right. But he was a little hesitant to give the, the fentanyl on the field because he was he hadn't given that to somebody on Suboxone yet. And um, so, yeah, I think I think there are right. It's kind of case by case. I think if you can do multimodal pain control in general, that's going to work better. Mm-hmm. Um, so for for people that are you know not on other medications or drugs that are problematic, I think giving both fentanyl and ketamine if you need it is probably ultimately going to get some better pain control anyway. Um, so, I mean, you, you sure you could give it by itself, but mm-hmm. yeah, just for the, the record for our listeners, Brian's the 50, 50 owner, other, other owner of the, the company that we have that um, runs this podcast and a couple other websites. So when we talk about Brian, that's who we're talking about. He's, <laughs> Mm-hmm. My counterpart. Um, so I'm looking. It, it's funny. I'm looking at my current agency's RSI protocol, and there is nothing about pain control on it. Yeah, it's not even discussed. Yeah. No. No. There's talk about mm-hmm. continued sedation, but, and you, talk but about, you guys will do it, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and you think about the people that we're giving that we're RSIing. It's typically trauma patients, or I would say stroke patients right. are ones yeah. that we innovate quite a bit. Yep. Stroke and trauma, and those are, I mean, dude, if I'm bleeding out into my brain, I hope you're going to give me some pain oh, meds. Like, good Lord, you know? Yeah, yeah just having a piece of even a piece of plastic in your throat yeah. is no kidding. Not, com- <laughs> not comfortable, right? right. It's right. painful. And exactly. pain management isn't the same thing as sedation either. Nope. You know, I mean, you can have someone that's sedated and asleep, but they could pain. still be in a lot of pain. And, that's and what, they can't tell that's you. That's what's not taught. That's what's not explained not very well on a physiological level, what's going on in the body versus, well, they're asleep. Like they're not in pain. Look at them. They're, they're you know, they're out. But. And if you're paying attention to their vitals, they might get tachycardic or right. high blood pressure. Um, but then if there's yeah. other th- things going on in their system, which it's never just one thing, mm-hmm. it's masked pretty easily. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. And a lot of the medications we use for sedation are not, do not have analgesic properties. No. Right. Right. You know, so, that's another thing that people don't, they think they can just give higher doses of these sedatives, but they're hitting the wrong receptors and they're not addressing like the pain and then you get people over sedated and et cetera. But I think a lot of it's driven by, um, in the past we've kind of been harped on by some of our trauma counterparts that we deliver people too sedated. Now they can't do their neuro assessment. Right. Um, right. and I get that because sometimes people have protocols. If their GCS is less than eight, they go straight to the ICU or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a balance, yeah. right? You don't want them to be under sedated or under pain control or wake up or pull their tube out, yeah. but we don't exactly know how it's all being absorbed to deliver them at the right mm-hmm. sedation level at the exact time at the ER doors. Right. So exactly. apologies in advance, right. trauma right. surgeons. Yeah. Or sure. neurologist. It's a, uh, it's a 
fun dance that you guys do in the pre-hospital for sure setting. Uh, and I think honestly, around here, you guys all like. I think you guys all do a really good job. That's awesome. Thank you. In, in Oregon, I mean, honestly, I think our yeah. pre-hospital we're pretty, we're pretty fortunate. Is, yeah, is pretty good. Granted, I haven't really practiced a lot of other places, but um, but I think the the pre-hospital care is pretty. Do uh, you guys definitely excel? That's right. Um, question for you. Yeah, I'm, I'm, all, I'm always saying that for this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. That, sir. I will throw you another I 20 bucks. That Steve's yeah. here. <laughs> uh, the question that I was curious about when it comes to that emergent reaction that we talk about or the, um, you know, everybody's kind of got a unique story about what their patient describes when they're kind of coming out into that. The reaction we kind of want to obviously make sure they don't. You know, right go into Mm -hmm. but um on the first episode of this series we had isaiah talking about his daughter coming into that emergence reaction she was seeing hamburgers on the ceiling and she's like you know talking about how she's going to be eating all the hamburgers that were above her um uh hospital bed (laughs) and so what's your preferred way of handling that or doing your best to ensure it doesn't happen i'm sure is you know a start, but if you're seeing someone kind of come into that, how do you like to handle that in the hospital setting? Yeah, I think, you know, a lot, there are a lot, there are people that talk about when you're doing sedation, if you get somebody in kind of a, in the right mindset before the sedation and granted that this is kind of like hand wavy stuff. And I don't know if there's good literature for it, but people will say like, if you spend a little time with the patient to get them in like their happy place, in a comfortable mindset and like thinking about things that are, you know, going to make them calm that, that usually they come out and they, they kind of have the same thoughts and they're not like, you know, seeing Satan on the wall and freaking mm-hmm. out. Right. Right. Yeah. And so I tend to actually, I sort of buy into that and I spend a little, especially with kids, like I'll spend a little time with them and be like, okay, we're going to give you medication. Think about like, where, where, where's the place that you love to like hang out. Right. And they'll usually tell you something and, you know, it's okay. Like just pretend you're there and get them into this like really good headspace before you kind of put them down for the sedation. And usually like, yeah, if they come out of it, they're saying funny stuff and it's not like super problematic. Um, but every once in a while, yeah, you know, they'll come out like very scared. Right. Mm-hmm. And if they, you know, they kind of get wide eyed and you can sort of see it coming. Right. And, you know, you, the, the kind of mainstay of treatment for that is like a benzo. Mm-hmm. Um, and some people will give small, small doses of benzos with ketamine because there's some thought that maybe that'll help kind of not have this happen. But in my experience, most of the emergency reactions are people will just kind of say funny stuff. Yeah. And well, it's not like they're not like jumping out of the bed and freaking <laughs> out and going crazy. But yeah, every once in a while you will see one where they, they definitely are scared and, um, it's a problem, but. Sure. So when you when you put but, someone down with ketamine, you can skip over that hole. What we I guess refer to as the K hole. I don't right. know if that's. Um, so you can skip over that that whole part. But as they come out of it, they have to go back through that, don't they? In order to come back out of the ketamine, like everyone's going to have some sort of emergence thing happen. It yeah. just might not be terrible. Right. I think. Yeah. I agree. I think everybody has some sort of. And sometimes you don't know because I don't say anything, right? Right. Um, but I would imagine that, yeah, I've never had ketamine personally, so I can't speak to it. But 
that you'll admit to. I would, <laughs> that I'll admit to, yeah. Not pharmaceutical grade, at least. Um, <laughs> and actually, I don't. I think that was one of the things on the list, street ketamine. I don't see any street ketamine around here. I don't know if I just don't, yeah. they don't make it to the ED, but I don't think that we have a lot of street ketamine in the Northwest. Mm-hmm. At the least in my time, experience. The only time I've seen it was uh, some people had stolen it from a vet clinic. And so, okay. I mean, they were using legit stuff, right? Um, but that was the only time I've actually seen a patient on it in the field. Mm-hmm. And it and was it's probably yeah. expensive because everyone uses it. It's a right. huge thing that all everyone's buying right now. Right, it's cheaper yeah. to get heroin. Yeah. Hey, Ramsey, it is. I, w- uh-huh. I was just going to ask a quick question on the Versed. Um, and maybe you said this, and I wasn't listening. But do you have a trigger point on when you're going to give the Versed? Like, do you give it all for, the time? For the emergence? Yeah. I, mean, I don't always give it, honestly. I don't. I, I have had pretty good success with not having people, like, come out of a, come out of a K-hole, like, freaking out. Um, so you don't give it prophylactically? I don't. I, I tend to not give it prophylactically, okay. no. And some people do, and you're probably not wrong in doing that. I think it's just, you know, I think then you get some pharmacodynamics of like multiple agents and like I try to keep things as clean as I can with sedations just because it is easier and makes things more predictable but but I don't think you're wrong in that and I think there's literature to support that if you do that it's, you're less likely to have this reaction and um, we don't have the luxury of having a nice chit chat with people before we put them under right and it's yeah. usually loud and chaotic, and there's a helicopter and there's sirens and yeah. I mean the closest we got <laughs> was that call with where the cops took this guy down, like yeah. And literally as they tackled this guy, they're talking to him calmly, like mm-hmm. I've never seen it before. Oh, it was so freaking rad. And they yeah. were like, "Okay, that was a bad choice, but we're still here. We're gonna take good <laughs> care of you." You know, blah, blah. <laughs> it was the weirdest thing. But these guys were so on top of it; it was so That's rad. Awesome. Um, yeah, I, I'll occasionally use ketophol or like fifty-fifty ketamine propofol ooh, first edition, but it does sound exotic, uh, yeah. it sounds more exotic than it is. It's, it's two separate syringes; one has propofol in it, one has ketamine, <laughs> and you give that you give half doses of each. But you know, it, uh, occasionally I'll do that for people that there's like a subset of patients that when you sedate them, the line between like needing breaths and so apneic that you're thinking about like addressing their airway and then sedated is like, this is really fine line for whatever reason. And sometimes if you use a combo like ketamine and propofol, you get a little less of that respiratory mm-hmm. suppression. Um, so some people like it for that, but I don't use it very often. Gotcha. So some of the things I noticed when I worked in the emergency room and the peds department when we use ketamine quite often was some of the things that are common to see like nystagmus, mm-hmm. some drooling, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, only happens sometimes. And then of course, as they come out, they're being silly and yeah. like, you're just, you're ready for college. Mm-hmm. You guys, they're all <laughs> yeah. locked and down. Um, what other kind of things are, should we be looking for? Um, as far as, yeah, I would, I would say the nystagmus is probably the most, most common and most reliable, and that's something that I, with kids, especially like I'll talk to the parents, their eyes are going to look kind of funny if the parents decide to stay in the room. You know, sometimes kids will also, you know, if you're doing a reduction, like they might make noise like they're in pain. 
because they're really still, it's like they're dissociated from this whole yeah, thing, right? right. Mm-hmm. Like, so they're not asleep. And so I always talk to patients, like, their eyes are going to look funny. They might look like they're spaced out. And when we, you know, when we move their bones around, they might kind of moan and groan and seem like they're in pain, but they won't remember any of this. That's a really right. good point. Their eyes will be open. Yeah. Like they might be looking yeah. at you, yeah. but there's no one home. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're, especially with kids, their eyes tend to stay, tend to stay open, and they're just not there. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think those are probably the you know the, the nystagmus is very expected and anticipated, and that's like one of the things we look for when we're sedating to see like okay, we can probably you know start messing around with their arm or whatever we're doing. Gotcha. Yeah. Is, yeah, is there anything we missed? Like, is there anything you'd love us to know as field providers? You know, no, I think the main things I would say are just being sort of hyper vigilant with patients on, especially if you're giving high dose, like I am ketamine. Mm-hmm. Like, there's really, they need, they need like very close monitoring. Right. And every, you guys know that, and everybody does a good job at that, but. You know, I think, like I said before, and we all do this in medicine, like we get so used to taking care of really sick people or critically ill people or using medications that are like, have a lot of potential side effects and potential danger that it's easy to sort of forget that. And just like, you know, always like just remembering, oh, if I'm giving this, it's like a big deal, right? Right. You know, like, like a sedation or putting some, putting somebody down with ketamine, um, it's like, you know, it's a big deal. Like those are some of the moments in medicine where if things are going to go south, like that's what's going to go south. Mm-hmm. And we do it so much that we're so comfortable with it that I think it's easy to, to lose sight of that. So just always like, you know, just being diligent about that, I think is really important. I remember in school, uh, one of my instructors said, if you're ever pushing RSI drugs and you aren't having a tight butthole moment, like you, you need to go check yourself because this is, yeah. this is like real, real deal stuff and we need to be hyper vigilant and mm-hmm. cognizant of what we're doing when we're pushing these medications because it's a privilege to be able to push them mm-hmm. and we don't want to be doing it willy nilly. No. So. Yeah. And I think you could apply that exact same sentiment to things like pushing ketamine, honestly. Mm-hmm. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Ramsey, really appreciate having you on the show, man. And, you know, I feel like we really were able to hit all angles of this topic and mm-hmm. um, appreciate your perspective and bringing all that to the show and uh, describing your experiences. And this is just going to help people be smarter in the field and, you know, be thinking more cognizantly of uh, what they're doing before they do it. And, again, always follow your local protocols. You can't say that enough. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, cool, Local man. Let's, let's leave it there. And, uh, yeah, just again, thanks for hanging out with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for uh, everything you guys are doing in the free hospital setting.